Hello, and welcome back to episode three of the School of Meta podcast. We're joined today by Amy Miller, who shares her perspective and wisdom on well-being and spirituality. Insights which both Christine and I have found really profound and full of compassion. When we began this process, I think Christine and I did so without the intention of arriving at a conclusion. Um, And the feedback that we've received already has been really fascinating. People have shared their perspectives and ideas, their responses to the things that we've, we've put out there. I suspect that we sit on the progressive or alternative end of a pedagogical spectrum. And in a sense, the process, the questions we're asking, the research, the inquiry, is what fascinates both Christine and I. But there's a risk, we've noticed, of this conversation becoming fragmented and fractured into so many small parts that we lose a sense of our narrative. So it's for that reason that we have decided to go and seek the source of our inquiry, which is rooted broadly in a discourse around well-being, happiness, human flourishing and spirit. One of the more challenging responses we received came from my friend and former colleague Will, who works as a IB diploma science teacher and as a university guidance counsellor. And we have a kind of regular WhatsApp chat. And I asked him to actually record his response to what was being said, because I felt that his perspective is probably a universal perspective. So here's what Will had to say. A few things that kind of raise the hairs on the back of my neck slightly when I hear uh, people talking about what seems to me like kind of minimising teacher sort of well-being. Um, I think uh, I can see the point of view uh, that you, was expressed in the podcast that that, that schools are set up um, primarily for teachers and ad- administration. I think it's very we have to be very careful though when talking about um, schools and thinking about maximizing student well-being uh, that we don't do that at the expense of teacher well-being. I think that one of the best ways that administrators can do that uh, is to actually support and cherish the the the, the relationship between um, all members of the community, so uh, administration and students, administration teachers, teachers and students, and so on. But the, really, the people who are working day in day out with with students, um, they are they are the people that do need to be do need to be considered. Um, there's nothing worse for a student than a burnt out teacher. There's nothing worse for a student than a, than a stressed out teacher. Um, and I think that uh, we, the rhetoric of oh yes, well we need to improve student well-being, um, you know, focus on these things. Yes, that's all well and good, but but you know, I just get very nervous uh, at the idea that, that we we don't um, we forget that actually uh, you know this needs to be th- th- these ideas need to be brought into the ground in terms of improving the situation for all members of that of that uh, of that community will's comments no doubt resonate with all of us as teachers 
And so when Christine and I interviewed Amy, we asked her, why should teachers make time for their own well-being? My experience has been if you yourself are shredded, meaning um, you're overwhelmed, depleted, uh, it can lend to stress. And then other negative mental states can come from that, whether it's lashing out at someone, anger, folding in on yourself, um, things like that. So I do find that maintaining a balanced lifestyle, which includes a balanced state of mind and will support a balanced state of mind, that's only going to help you to be more beneficial and of service to others. Right. So it's even bodhisattvas, which are high-level kind of Buddhist saints. Most of the teachers, the highly realized teachers that I, am, that I know, they make time for themselves. So I think setting boundaries is extremely important on a spiritual path and on also a path of service and we're really with this big-hearted wish to benefit others. I think it's essential. And I think we're selling ourselves short to think, I should just work all the time. I should just always be available for the next student and always take a phone call and never set a limit on a meeting. And I, I think that's unreasonable for human beings. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the reason is human beings, the nature of the human condition is it's limited. It, it's not fully expanded yet. It's just the actual realistic situation as humans. And I think most humans I know, we could just look at ourselves. People come to you and need advice. They might want help. Something happens. And you can see that there's a wall that our mind hits where we don't know the best thing to say to someone. You don't know the best thing to do for someone. And, um, and as long as that case is set up, we can't be perfect and be everything to everybody every moment. The Buddha mind, if you have a highly realized, totally expanded consciousness that has infinite wisdom, compassion, and loving kindness, you can do that. But if that's not your experience, I think setting boundaries is enormously helpful. My teachers recharge. It appears they recharge themselves through retreat. That's something I do myself. And I recharge through my own also alone time of my practice and my study so that then when I'm engaging with people, there's more of me to offer. Mm. That's really beautiful. Thank you. I think a lot of teachers will be able to relate to that very, very closely. Yeah. But I almost want to add that and, um, and this may not, this may be heard by people that are non-Buddhist. It doesn't matter. But we, those of us with the good hearts, or we want to help others, we have this wish to do it. But I feel like if you have that wish, and you're, te especially teaching kids, but anybody, it's it's almost our responsibility to set boundaries, to be clear about boundaries, and and renewing and recharging ourselves in order to do that. So I feel like it. It goes hand in hand. It's not something you kind of put on the side and go, well, later I'll figure out how to set boundaries. It needs to be an imprint. We have to familiarize ourselves with it from the beginning. I just think it's so essential as part of that work, part of the wholehearted work. 
we've heard the expression, are we a human doing or are we a human being? And the doing is part of our cultures. We get caught up, but what I've noticed from being somebody who was very immersed in the world, and and am still quite a quite a to to a degree, but now as a Buddhist nun, the you can get caught up, but when you start to get stressed, people tend to speed up. They mm. feel like they have to now do more, and I have to do it faster. And now I have all this stuff on my list. I have all these people that want to see me. I have all these things, and I and so now I have to do more. But it's actually training yourself a little bit to look at that pattern, notice the shallow breathing that starts, that's associated with it. Once you start shallow breathing, you're not getting oxygen to your system. So that creates more stress. So I actually find secular mindfulness practice, it's not necessarily Buddhist, but where you're, you're bringing things back to the breath and just allowing yourself two or three deep breaths to lend perspective, right? To suddenly give you like, okay, here's my normal pattern. I'm getting stressed now. I'm getting overwhelmed. You can label it whatever you want, however, or even you'd say I'm burnt out. Those are merely words. So you can attach more meaning on those words, load them up, and then load them onto your back. And mm-hmm. you're going to collapse. So the question is, okay, a, a little bit of quiet time. I notice this is my pattern. So what I'm going to do now after my third or fourth deep breath is I'm going to review my list and the people I need to see. And what I'm going to have to do is limit it to the top three things that have to happen. What essentially has to happen. The other things clearly I will deal with tomorrow. That will be my priority tomorrow. State that to whomever you need to state it clearly. And so I just think it's okay to still in our space, create that space of calm, even if you're in the midst of the tornado, (laughs) the eye of the tornado right? Or is it the eye of the hurricane, they say, is a calm place. So can you kind of be that calm place, even though there's people spinning out around you? You know, I also feel like if you're in a workspace, and I've seen this with many of my friends, I used to be in the space myself, because everybody else is staying late and doing these things. um, I learned to have more respect after a while for the people that set boundaries and went home. Mm-hmm. And we're very clear. And, and you know what? They actually got almost the same amount of stuff done. So I think it's a little bit of that self-evaluation. How long will I be able, be able to sustain the chaos, the overwhelm, the stress? How long will I be able to sustain it where after two years I'm burnout and now I change jobs and I want to do something else? And the consistency of staying the course a little longer, especially in teaching and building environments with people would be better to sustain it longer if you could. Yeah. But so if the stress is there, I, I think, um, you know, that tends to have us collapsing more quickly and things. So as far as the institutional thing, I would just say it does take somebody with a strong mind to kind of start to look at their own mind to say, I can maintain a calm and I can start to develop a calm even though the rest of the people have not bought into this, but, and then what from that space, you can be an example where they start to see that you're not as agitated, that they see that you actually have a lot more resources 
to give to the people when you are there in the appointments because you went home an hour earlier than everybody else or because you at lunch had ate lunch for 15 minutes on your own that's all you needed and went out for a 15 minute walk to kind of move your body stretch your legs get some fresh air and came in and now you're really ready for the meeting much clearer space does that make sense it makes great sense to both of us and in keeping with our quest for the source of our work we asked Amy to consider what spirituality in education might mean for her. Well, the, the term spiritual alone is, it can mean different things to different people. So that's where it can be tricky. You could talk about spiritual affecting the human spirit, right? Affecting the soul as opposed to like a, a physical plane. You could talk about something that it's about somebody's religious belief. So some people might say, no, but it's just about meaningful activity. Or in, in Buddhism, we might even say it's, it's about being an inner being. You know, I, I'm bringing, when something goes wrong outside, I take it inside to kind of say what's my responsibility. So it's a very individual thing right now. And our planet is not all that interested in it for the most part, depending, you know, where. And so I, I feel like to force it on people doesn't feel best. And I, I like the thing about Buddhism that it's really how people come to it themselves. We're not a proselytizing way of life or belief system. You have to really want this and pursue it and, and um, turn over the philosophy in your own mind and be discerning. So I, I can't say that moving that out into the world, I know in the States it makes people nervous because we have a separation technically of church and state and in the schools, unless it's a religious school, that kind of thing is not taught. And a lot of people don't want that taught in the schools. So, and then it means different things to different people. So then how do you move that out? That's why secular mindfulness has kind of spoken to that where they're kind of saying, we're not talking about anybody's belief system but if you want to follow your, you're stressed right now, if you want to take a deep breath and just notice how that stress is moving through your body and you don't like it, well, here's some ways to think about it, to release it and change it. So do you see what I mean? So for me, you know, it's, it's been a fantastic path, but I wouldn't foist it on others until they're really done with all the other things to say, I, I've tried all these other things and you know, now it's not working and I'm kind of interested in this way. Mm. I, mean, I, I noticed with colleagues that we would do a, a mindfulness practice. I think almost every other time I introduced it, that p process of silence would actually, people might react to it incredibly strongly with tears or with an emotional response that, you know, was kind of unexpected. And I think in schools, we, 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 we rarely do we, do we have these moments of collective silence in of itself that that seemed to be really powerful and I, and, it, and it it has occurred to me and I, and I think for Christine as well that we've in in the sort of struggle to take out religion out of English and and quite often European schools we, we've kind of created a void or a gap where there isn't a lot of support for young people to think about living and dying or to to discuss their own kind of you know existential 
questions. It's it's a it, there is a, a void that I think we are now as educators globally looking to sort of to re rethink, and I think that's where mindfulness has become so. Would you agree even that that's why mindfulness has become so well received? I think in 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 places. I, I agree. Yeah, I would say that's why, you know, I mean, I myself really prefer Buddhism, but I value the mindfulness movement because it is related. Um, I know His Holiness, you know, was meeting with John Kabat-Zinn, who's delightful. Uh, both of them are, you know, and, and he said to John Kabat-Zinn, it's wonderful. Just don't call it Dharma, um, mm. because it doesn't actually give you a way to completely dismantle the cause of the suffering. However, it's an incredible tool to move on to that path. So I do, I do agree with you. I think mindfulness would be a wonderful way in there. And I know a lot of people that have benefited from it that are not interested in any spiritual path and, and they're not going to be Buddhist, but they have benefited from it. I'm very aware of the fact that when we're doing mindfulness practice per se, that it's just creating space in the mind or it's just bringing the attention back into the breath or the body and that there really isn't anything more going on than that in that in that particular case. And so what Toby's saying about spirituality and what you're saying is about the mindfulness is a good tool, but it, it's not the Dharma and, and it's not a practice in, in that sense that will take you um, deeper on your on your on your path, whatever path that might be. And I, I wouldn't um, I'm not devaluing secular mindfulness, I don't mean to sound critical negatively of it, because I think it's wonderful. I just feel like there's different things for different people. And so I think that can be a great support for some people. And then some people that really want the Buddhist path or this kind of spirituality, great. And there's people like me who've taken that to a, a more deepening place where I'm a nun, I've chosen to be a nun. And so I do think it's important for people to be where they are with it. And there's different paths at the top of the mountain, right? So it's very important for people to find their own path of what works. But I would so much encourage that part of their paths include some sort of practice where they can be quiet for a moment and get to know their minds better to understand the mechanisms, mechanisms that, that have them creating negative patterns that they're never happy with, you know, and then understanding what are their positive qualities, which many times they refuse to acknowledge or focus on, you know, so that creates another form of dishealth. And then they, um, and this is a way they can actually move away from those negative patterns, uh, slowly dismantling, purifying those and enhancing the positive qualities. So I think they're all step by step. And, and also I think what's important, especially for Western cultures, I know how fast paced the United States can be um, England as well. I teach there every year and um, other places in the world. So this is a process. And, you know, a lot of times Americans wanted their, they want their enlightenment and they wanted it two weeks ago wrapped up in a nice gold box. Perfect. But that's not the, that's not the process. The process takes time and effort. And we don't seem as a culture or as cultures to have issues with effort. We make tremendous effort, as you've mentioned. The problem is the effort's just directed in ways that aren't necessarily beneficial. Mm. So if we could a little bit start to look at our priorities 
And if you even need to make a list of pros and cons or priorities, what works best for you, you know, what are my main things? And that can come from our values like that. But when you make these priorities of noticing, um, I actually do want to start some sort of meditation practice. I don't know the first thing about how to do it, but that is important to me. So maybe I can divert a half an hour from all the time I spend on social media or the internet or whatever, watching TV. Maybe I can take a half an hour this week from all that stuff, just one half hour, and move it into finally getting that meditation book or checking out this center where they teach this or going online and doing this one meditation that's listed. And I'm going to try that and really stick to it for a week. And then maybe I'll do that for a month, keep that half hour going like that and just see as it progresses, does it benefit me? Does it not benefit? Because generally most people would say they see that it's beneficial and then that gets them interested and then they start increasing the half an hour or finding other practices to do, lessening the other distractions that I think create a lot of stress. I think social media to a degree, the internet, the internet has this beautiful ability to take our energy and it can take our energy in a very focused way only to scatter it, right? And is that really helpful sometimes, all the various information we're getting you know, you start clicking and then clicking again on something else. And your initial thing you went on for, the, the initial link somebody sent you about this talk, and now you're suddenly in the dancing cat videos. And you don't even know, or you're in some kind of political conspiracy video that you had no intention. So I find also being very skillful to limit our time with our technology, where I'm not allowing it to interfere with my space, but I'm using it with directed awareness at what I need to use it for. If this is the first time that you've been exposed to the ideas that Amy's sharing, or if you're curious or interested to find out more about Amy Miller, then please go and visit her website, www.amymiller.com. We asked Amy to describe herself in her own words as well. I am a certified teacher for an organization called the FPMT, which stands for the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana Tradition. It's a large international Buddhist group with about 170 centers and projects set up around the world. And they're based in Portland, Oregon in the United States. And I'm te I technically independent, even though I teach for them and I focus on many of their centers all over the world. But as a nun in the West, we don't have proper support, unfortunately. We do have a monks and nuns fund that's wonderful, but they're just, unfortunately, based on our culture, there isn't an actual way that people are used to. There's no nunneries for us and not, you know, not much like that that we could go to in my particular tradition with my teacher. So... I basically study on my own, and now I'm living with an elderly parent uh, who's kind enough to give me the space. And then when, the, when I teach, people invite me, and then they take care of the expenses for that. And so I really rely on the kindness of others. And I have a website that is www.amymiller.com. And through the website, there's a book 
I co-authored called, called Buddhism in a Nutshell. That's an overview of our philosophy and our tradition, the Gelug or Galupa tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. And that's been very helpful. There's also an 11-hour CD at the back of the book of my teaching, the, the bigger course, because the book was excerpts. And um, that has a whole full comprehensive overview of the philosophy that a lot of people have found helpful. It benefits our organization that if people buy that book. And then there are some meditations on my website of how to set up a meditation practice, how to begin meditation. And I've been a nun for close to 16 years. I've been studying Buddhism for close to 30 and used to be involved in politics in the United States. So you can imagine the transition for me. I found it incredibly helpful to start to move along a spiritual path and use some of the resources to look inside as far as sorting some of my problems that will better inform me going outside. And I do teach at centers around the world and lead retreats and um, also lead pilgrimages. So I may be taking a group of people, a small group of people in the autumn of 2017 to Laudo, which is a place, a very remote retreat center near Mount Everest. So if anyone's interested in that, I will, I have a little teaser on my website now, but there will be more information about that. And I'll be leading a short retreat up there and they can explore the area. And it's basically like trekking in Nepal. And I'm just very happy to connect with people to give them also some practical ways to build into daily life. Like people that are married, raising families, and everybody can practice. This is not separate just for Buddhists. Not anybody can bring some wonderful tools into their everyday life when you're in the grocery store, when you're driving, when you're teaching, when you're a student, when you're with your parents, when you're with friends, how to practice in the pub. You know, I think it's really critical that we bring it into everyday life. And I think um, all of it really motivated with kindness and compassionate wisdom. The insightful words of Amy Miller. And to wrap up today's podcast, we want to return to those observations made by Will at the start. Really, the people who are working day in, day out with with students, um, they are they are the people that do need to be do need to be considered. Listening to sort of feedback from the last podcast, I wondered if in our provocation we'd kind of presented things in a fairly sort of binary choice. In other words, it was either student well-being that schools should focus on or staff well-being. And I think it may have come across that we were saying that it should be uniquely student well-being. I, w- I wondered what your lucid thoughts on that would be. <laughs> my lucid thoughts? Yeah. My thoughts, not sure how lucid they are. Um, I, I really do want to clarify a bit about that statement, which... If I think back retrospectively, I put it out there without really explaining what I meant or without expounding on it before we moved on to the next topic. And when I listened back out of context, it does sound very black and white, you know, us or them or or very, very much hierarchical. And I didn't mean it that way at all. In fact, I really agree with what Will is saying and um, absolutely student well-being and teacher well-being cannot be separated. 
they're completely interdependent. Uh, what I was referring to more was in terms of organizational structure and the way that schools seem to be structured around well, if you look at a school, it's both a workplace and a learning place. So it needs to be structured as both. And I think sometimes the workplace structure can win out over the learning place structure. And I was thinking a bit more about that this morning in terms of just by way of going into so many schools in the last year and seeing, I, I always look at the organizational chart. And without fail, it's always the same people on top and the same people on the bottom. And I think in terms of organization, I'd really like to see that flipped so that we're either looking at an organizational chart that's circular and interdependent and moves backwards and forwards and one part informs the other part and, and it's very much of a kind of an ecological cycle ensuring balance and wholeness. Or just flip the whole thing and, and put the heads and directors on the bottom supporting everything else on top, which is actually what the reality of the jobs should be in a sense. Yeah. Hey, I, I agree. And I, 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 you know, I sound slightly flippant when I say I agree like that. I think that it's my belief based on the evidence of my experience that the most critical work that take place in the school is that which is done by the teacher and the teacher who is with the young people um, and so you know I think I, I don't know if we're apologizing in a sense for saying we want to focus on student well-being um, because I think that's actually a part of the the sort of the outcome we want to see which is if we focus completely on the students and we make it our priority to to create the community which which nurtures well-being, then I kind of think evidently um, we will have to work on the whole community's well-being, right? Absolutely, the whole structure. And I think going deeper into it and looking at it from a more whole perspective, it's far more structural than just a simple statement of saying student well-being, teacher well-being, and atomizing it into these little pockets of, you know, however you want to achieve that goal it, it can't you can't achieve one without the other mm. and i believe a healthy school where student well-being is considered will automatically assume teacher well-being yeah yeah i agree and and um i think there's a second sort of point to make which is about the process of our podcasting our our newfound um careers in in broad <laughs> in broadcast Broadcasting. Yeah, which is that actually this is an inquiry, is it not? You know, and and so it's interesting to put things on the record in an in an oral way, which are then you you kind of held accountable for. And I think there's a risk, isn't there, that if we if we're oversensitive about our observations, that we'll actually reduce our capacity to say anything, right? So it's kind of inquiry led. It's it's a discussion. We we, we intend it to be a bit provocative also, I, I believe. Yeah, and I think we both know that we're not, we're not experts at all in these fields and we're just hanging out our ideas and looking for feedback and, and trying to gather more information. 
Yeah. And each time someone does make a comment, it does help me clarify my thinking. And, and I do sometimes open a book or, or turn to learn more about that topic. So it's just healthy discussion. It's, it's to me, um, that's what I'm really enjoying about the process. But it is a risk for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I would like to draw attention to the book we spoke about in one of our first conversations, um, Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Laloux, if anyone who's listening has an interest in looking at organizational structures and, and moving, uh, moving forward in an evolutionary sense and looking at how organizations function, that's a good book to read. Yeah, cool, I better go and read it. Um, when I was thinking about Amy and her interview that we conducted now over a week ago, um, there were bits of what she said that have continued to resonate with me. Primarily this idea of the kind of scattering of our attention through social media. And it really, it really sort of resonated with me because, you know, here we are sharing a piece of work via social media. And she, she sort of made a challenge, which is turn off your devices. Find that 30 minutes in the week. I can't remember if that was exactly the time. But, uh, you know, engage in, 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 in prioritising your own well-being. And um, so I, I, I kind of wanted to sort of remind myself of that. But I also had the question for you, which is, was there anything about what she said that has kind of remained in your thinking? The whole conversation was so articulate and, and straightforward and practical and simple that um, it really left a huge impression on me. But the two things that stood out the most, I think, firstly, was the sense of creating boundaries and that this is something that we shouldn't be embarrassed about or we shouldn't be made to feel we're not contributing fully um, by, by saying, you know, I've worked this many hours, I'm going to go and give this time to myself now or to nurture my family or my interests or, or in whatever way we need those boundaries. So the creation of boundaries, and then the second thought, um, or the second idea that she proposed was when I'd asked her about introducing a mindfulness program with children, she was surprisingly supportive of that. I kind of thought maybe she wouldn't be, but she was. And, and the, she said, if you could start children at, as early as four or five years old, just with the simple concept of do no harm and, and let that idea infiltrate the school and and the relationships it, it would it could create huge change and um wow i that made a huge impression on me because i think you could that could be your whole behavioral policy basically for the school couldn't it yeah yeah and i think it's probably worth us going back to that now and just listening to wrap up our podcast, Amy's words on, on, on those values. If a fundamental value that was taught to children from four or five years old, you could start earlier. I would certainly start it earlier, but I'm saying if it got into the schools at four or five years old and the value was not to harm others, just that value. Mm. How, and if it was really supported and encouraged and a little bit enforced, you know, when it got, when things happen, because human nature pops out and suddenly we do something to harm someone, um, it would be a very different space, I think, this country. 
as far as just promoting and just nourishing, not harming others. Thanks for listening. The music for the podcast was recorded by Lucas Maximo Park, and you can find him on Twitter. And you can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at, at School of Meta. <laughs>